0: Hi, I'm Jason Collette, and you're listening to The Basement Review. In this episode, we get Alex Tiglar, a.k.a. Notorious Sex Columnist Sasha, sharing a provocative story about the intrepid research that went into writing her column in the 90s. Damien Rogers chats with Alex on being a political harlot, and I get things started with a song off my new record, Song and Dance Man. Welcome to The Basement Review. Ladies and gentlemen,
1: our next artist, some of you know as Sasha, but she is the activist and residence at Wilfrid Laurier University, focusing on teaching students about the nights of sex, sorry, not the nights of sex workers, which would be interesting, but the rights of sex workers, which is more important for people to learn about in a university setting. Um, From 1994 to 2012, Alex was the sex columnist Sasha. She, in the heyday of syndication, was widely syndicated across this country. And tonight she's reading a story from a collection that she's working on about that time. This is a time before the internet really formed our experiences of what it was like to meet someone for the first time. This is a really great story. Enjoy it.
2: I'm really excited to be sharing the stage with all these sacred and profane women. (laughs) I met Bob the barber the way you used to meet people who groom people's pubic hair for a living outside of the clinical setting, through the back pages of my local weekly. The fine details of the advertisement are lost to my memory, but what I can salvage, perhaps based more on the experience than on reality, is a happy face, and a barber's pole at a jaunty angle. Emojis of the past, cut and paste, art department. Bob had his studio out of an apartment in NDG in the west end of Montreal. Initially, this was the first, the thing that surprised me the most because NDG was really Anglophone, but over the years I have come to understand that people do sex work and provide sex services all over the place even in English-speaking quarters. I walked up a few flights of stairs and was greeted at the half-open door by a snarling one-eyed Yorkie whose name, as I learned from Bob's rebuking screams, was Peggy, Peggy, get in here. Bob was an older gentleman with thinning gray hair. He was wearing thick glasses, a loose 80s-style tank top, and running shorts. He welcomed me very gaily into the apartment, your standard NDG abode, creaking hardwood floors, high ceilings, endless rooms, stuff piled here, there, and everywhere, a working fireplace that was working as a giant ashtray. Bob led me down a hallway to a room that's main features were a massage table and stacks of cassettes. He encouraged me to take my pick of music To enhance our encounter, Tom Jones, obviously. (laughs) It's not unusual. The space wasn't immaculate and it wasn't particularly sexy, but seeing as how I had never had my pubic hair professionally styled before, I didn't have anything to compare it to, except for the one time I accompanied a friend to a Hungarian esthetician in Vancouver who provided the economical option of reused depilatory wax. I often worry that the image of this dark, bubbling amber blob with wiry hair stuck through it will be the last thing I ever think about. (laughs) Bob and I discussed styles. I decided I just wanted a little off the sides and he quickly went to work putting a heating pad and a vibrator over my crotch and preparing a hot towel, I realized perhaps a little late and probably due to my lifelong commitment to selective reasoning that Bob wasn't just shaving women. He was also giving them orgasms. (laughs) Jinkies. I thought to myself as he was grandly cracking open a fresh disposable razor. I didn't feel like the conditions were right for me to come, so I declined the erotic component by launching into a series of practical questions about Bob's unique line of work. In the early 90s, my column was called Sex Reporter, and I was pretty serious about maintaining professional distance. (laughs) While still getting a hot scoop. It turned out that Bob had a couple of sidelines. He also gave people what he called daddy baths. The sex reporter was curious about this service because though I was a stripper myself and had worked as a bartender in a brothel for the rock machine, I was still unaware of the myriad fetishes that could be worked into a living. I bridle when I hear the new line of queer white hookers describing themselves as working class, genuflecting their oppression to those whose burdens are more visible. But it does turn out that being raised by two teenagers who never finished high school and leaving home at 17 myself made me kind of, well, a little bit of a pleb, actually. (laughs) Bob said that people would request he bathe them like a father figure, fussing over them and patting them dry. Nice and cozy. I was convinced he was lying about this. So naive was I was to the vast and varied terrain of human desire. Bob also did a bit of BDSM and gave me a tip which I ended up using in my own vast and varied professional erotic career. Taking a pair of chopsticks to a person's testicle and penis and binding them together at the ends with elastics. He brought out his Polaroid lookbook to show me. And if you just twist them and yank them through his legs and twist them back, he can be bound from behind too. Easy peasy. Boing! hear you in that garbage you want to lose the other fucking eye (laughs) over the next couple of years i would check in on bob sometimes requesting his unique expertise for a quote in my column (laughs) i'm perming a chinese woman's pubic hair for her wedding night he yelled during one such phone call did you know that chinese women have straight pubic hair and then back to the room. It's Sasha, girls, Sasha, from the Montreal, uh, from the media. (laughs) Bob was a good sex businessman in that he always made it seem like there was something exciting and wild going on at his place. He knew the key to running a good sex business. Always seem busy, desired, and upbeat. The internet as a vehicle for promoting sex services really took off around 1998, and I'm actually not sure that Bob enriched his business by building a website, but nothing comes up if you Google Bob the Barber in Montreal. (laughs) Bob's business would not survive the economy of entitlement the internet has come to foster anyway, I think. Take one or two flip reviews on Yelp about the whirlwind state of his apartment or the dated selection of his cassettes or his baggy, Take On Me Tank Top! And that would be curtains for him. Or worse, some young blogger confused by their community's emphatic assurances that sexual discomfort is sexual assault would decide that Bob's ministrations were odd and therefore inappropriate and therefore rape. And Bob, who had very likely grown up poor, and queenie and out of place and uneducated about boundaries because everything needed to go undiscussed when being a queer and a whore was a crime, would be cast into a spotlight that would make everything he did seem sinister and repulsive again, but this time from the inside. I wonder what will happen to our erotic brains now that the part that hunts with impulsive instinct has less to do. This idea perpetuated by online consumerism that we are owed all the details in advance. We need to be apprised of and experts on everything before we've even imagined it. What is this doing to us? Four and a half years ago, I went off Facebook. It's not healthy for me. Someone who very, very nearly got lost to the dark, bubbling, amber blob to construct my life around a social model that requires I be liked. But more importantly, and almost indescribable to people 20 years younger than me, is that I miss finding stuff. I miss meeting intrepid charlatans and agreeing to believe their ruse. I miss the possibility of failure and eccentricity and how that prepared me for failure and eccentricity in my own sex life. It was my pleasure, as Sasha, to ferret out dirty, secret spaces. I've been to topless hairdressers in Laval, second-generation-owned strip clubs in the backroom porn theaters on Young, and male-for-female brothels in Scarborough, and I found them all through ads, flyers, specialty publications, and word of mouth. This was more than half the adventure, sitting on public transit, holding a spiral memo pad with an address, walking up the stairs of a nondescript building, knocking on the door, and waiting to see what was on the other side.
1: Hi, this is Damian Rogers and I'm here with Alex Tigelar. and we're going to talk a little bit about the stories you've been writing about being a sex columnist in the 90s for alternative weeklies I know you started in Montreal and then moved to Toronto so why don't you talk a little bit about what it was like when you started and, and how things shifted a bit as the years went on
2: So when I first started my sex column, a lot of the information that I was seeking out through, uh, like, you know, novelty publications, little magazines that I would find in strip clubs, uh, ads at the back of those very weeklies, in fact, and, uh, you know, also just through word of mouth or uh, as we used to do, uh, walking around the city and looking at things and thinking, oh, maybe I'll go in there. At that time in Montreal uh, in the early 90s, uh, businesses were, were trying to sort of promote themselves a little more erotically, and so there was this whole slew of businesses with the word sexy in front of it, uh, which means sexy. So there was sexy car washes and sexy hair salons and sexy <laughs> diners, and what this meant was that you would be served uh, by a young woman in, in terrible early 90s papillon blanche lingerie, um, and uh, what, that was, what, what, can
1: you describe what that would look like?
2: Well, I mean, you know, the white obviously comes to mind. Purple, peach-colored, uh, very lacy, like very, very, very lacy. Yeah, we're looking at teddies. We're looking so at body okay. stockings. We're looking at the first incarnations of stay-up stockings. Okay, so um, sort of
1: early Victoria's Secret catalog. Oh, uh, yeah, I would Frederick's
2: say. Fredericks of Hollywood. Was there any Fredericks of Hollywood yeah, fashion involved? Yeah, it it was a- along those lines for sure. Uh, and so you would go into a place where someone wholly unqualified to cut your hair uh, (laughs) would cut your hair, but they would have their boobs out, for example. Or someone wholly unqualified to wash a car would wash your car, but they were wearing uh, stay-up stockings and like a little onesie. Uh, someone, uh, you know, I mean qualified to serve a meal, but going far too close to a sort of a grill sizzling with bacon uh, in, you know, a teddy. So um, there was, you know, a, a lot to investigate. It was absolutely unmediated. So you didn't have um, these sort of dilettante-ish uh, critics uh, involved um, in uh, giving their opinions of those places. That was my job.
1: Right. So there know. was no Yelp for these uh, places. I was Yelp. You were Yelp. Yeah. Were those columns that you were writing at that time? What was the motivating spark most weeks?
2: I mean, I've always, I've always had my own curiosity about um, what I, I guess I would refer to as these sort of bold charlatans uh, who who entered the sex trade with you know a, a, a sort of a, a misguided, um, sort of hap, haphazard toolkit. Uh, and, uh, and they'll create these businesses like, for example, Bob the Barber, who was uh, the gentleman who um, uh, styled women's pubic hair erotically. Right. Uh, I, I felt quite strongly that he did not have a background in doing that, that that was just something that he added to his uh, his resume in order to, to make money. And I like that about sex trade workers. Um, I like um, people's ability to make a business out of something erotic. Uh, and so, of course... I was very curious about that. And yes, that was the tenor of my column initially. It wasn't a Q&A format.
1: In your own mind, what makes sex so important culturally?
2: Oh, wow, what a question. I think... I'm almost stumped, and I think that's that's the answer, right? Mm-hmm. I, I can't answer that, and that is precisely the answer, uh, because it has been co-opted uh, by so many. Um, I, <laughs> you know, let's let's get all um, uh, crazy here, but you know, by by uh, the state apparatus, by ideal ideologies, by mm-hmm. religion, by ev- everybody has something to say about sex and the way that you're doing it, uh, and they all uh, often have a lot of power over your expression. Uh, and so I'm very, very curious and, and also uh, stand in awe of people who are like, you know what, Catholic Church, fuck you. Right. You know, uh, you know what, uh, state authorities, you know what, legal system, fuck you. I'm going to do what I want to do uh, and I'm going to make my own way and my own living uh, despite being framed as a social pariah. And so I'm, I'm often impressed with people like that, and, and you will find them in sexual subcultures because that's one of the only places uh, that we continue to have a great deal of disregard for. So, for example, when I first started writing my column, people would refer to it as a space where, you know, the lowest com- it was the lowest common denominator thing. Uh, and, and I took that to heart, but I also understood it's because we have so much disrespect for sex, That anybody writing about it surely could be doing something better.
1: Well, and I think it's very interesting what you touch on there. The idea of the resistance culture that blossoms around subjects of sexuality Mm -hmm. is something that you have looked into throughout your whole career. Can you talk a little bit about the connection for you between the work that you did as a columnist and the work that you did as a stripper and as uh, a, a playwright, and uh, you know, someone who got up on stage and combined the idea of being naked and telling innovative narrative stories mm-hmm. at the same time.
2: It's a long history of women who have done that. Uh, there's a long history of harlots uh, who who are who are political, uh, who are educated, who uh, take space in that manner. Um, and we could talk for hours about that as well, but I, I just—it it just seemed like a, again a very natural extension uh, and something that was kind of the, I guess, the public or the stage per- personification of writing a sex column. I suppose that that in, is in a way a sort of a lonely pursuit, being a columnist, um, and so I guess also that was another place for me to to be to be social and political uh, simultaneously, and also um, express in in a in a again a more immediate and public sense uh, a tactile sense uh, some of the things that I learned and understood as a sex columnist. Um, so what
1: in your piece, one of the things that I think was particularly provocative was the fact that you touched on a real cultural shift in our idea of what is safe uh, in in any kind of sexual, experience. Um, And obviously, issues of consent are very important and a big part of our ongoing conversation in, you know, whenever we're talking about sex now, and certainly in the last year or so, it's become even more foregrounded. And so it's unusual to hear the point of view that you're taking in this piece where you're, you're actually looking somewhat nostalgically back at a time when that that lack of communication and what seems like an almost unacceptable amount of danger in in a kind of sexually charged interaction between two people um, had had the opportunity for a, a kind of greater connection, maybe. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth. How how would you describe? The differences, and and possibly what your criticisms are now to some of some of these changes in attitude.
2: Well, I think um, the construct and the issue of safety and consent. Um, it it can be muddied. Uh, And when we don't accept that it can be muddied, when we don't accept that someone may have done something to us that they did not intend to do or that we can then frame in a very particular way, we, again, don't understand that space. Um, And I'm always very, very aware of and cautious of and critical of spaces that become crucible-like Uh, Mm. that have the potential to uh, turn into a witch hunt, uh, that have the potential to finger point and wave and wag uh, without a lot of critical analysis or without, in a way, an open heart. Um, And again, things cannot be black and white like that. But I also do believe that if you do not experience failure or eccentricity in your sex life, then you are not prepared... For failure and eccentricity, then it it simply does not prepare you for um, negative experiences. What can happen? That can happen. Uh, you believe that any negative experience that happens because it's been framed uh, in a prevailing um, culture, um, the rape culture, as rape. Uh, you you can't make your own decisions around how you felt about that. And again, it does not prepare you for failure and negativity. Yeah, I think I think it's so difficult for us
1: in this historical moment because I think culturally we've never been good at enduring any kind of ambiguity yeah. within experience. That's right. Um in the past the kind of silencing that uh, that victims of sexual abuse were subjected to um just sort of annihilated any possible conversation around any kind of ambiguity. That's right. right. Um and now, in the in the response to that, it seems you're suggesting that there's that um, we're also losing an opportunity to explore a, an ambiguous moment f- uh, from the possibility of of it not being a crisis. Yes. at all times. Yeah, absolutely. That, that that just the the state of confusion mm-hmm. in itself is not synonymous with. Abuse, yeah. or assault. It's so. It's a, it's even even phrasing it now. It's a it's a very very difficult piece of ground to walk across. It's a
2: very difficult piece of ground to walk across. Often because you feel the oppression uh, of people's um, desire to to have a, an unambiguous answer about for it for clarity. So if you say something uh, ambiguous, uh, you risk actually being shouted down. So people are using precisely the same tools um, to to shout you down as they are critiquing in a way, right? I said, Audrey Lord, you can't dismantle the master's house with the master's tools. But I'm also very—I will say—I'm extremely surprised um, at young women uh, who, I, I. it's it's very interesting, I guess, in a neoliberal culture where people are w- so worried about their careers that they won't actually kick someone's nuts up into their throat. Um, uh, There's just not enough kicking. into just nuts yeah, right up into the throat. Right into the throat you in, know, like shoe polish for settings. weeks. You're <laughs> tasting. I just uh, it's it really surprises me that that people um, have ambiguous feelings about that in the moment too. So
1: right, yeah. yeah. That 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 that's an interesting place to, to close. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I, want to really thank you. I think, um, the, what excites me the most about reading these stories that you've been putting together has been, uh, reconnecting for myself with that period of time in the nineties when the, the world required a completely, uh, an actually physical, um, form of investigation in order to meet it um, on its own terms, yeah. and, and this idea uh, in that piece where you describe knocking on doors and and having no idea what's going to be on the other side of it. Mm-hmm. I think um, I think that's such a, a an incredibly exciting uh, place to to try to return to, even yeah. if it's even if it's only in story.
2: Yeah, and where we're not owed. An absolutely stellar positive experience every <laughs> single time. This
1: no, yeah, the the world before the Yelp review. Mm-hmm. Okay,
2: thank you so much, Alex. Thanks, Damien
1: All
0: right, we'll talk later. Bye.